please again join me as we bow together and pray and seek the face of the Lord and his grace and help in our preaching of his word. Let us bow together. Our Father, we wait upon you and are utterly dependent upon you for every good thing that we may have or we may need. And this hour we need desperately, O Lord, to hear you speak to our hearts and to have your word sanctify us. We need to be able to understand truth and reality. We need to have our hearts changed so that we would love and welcome truth and reality. We need to be delivered from our escape and our efforts to circumvent your will and your purposes and your commandments. We need, O Lord, our sins forgiven. Those who are strangers to grace among us need to be saved before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. The church needs its faith strengthened. We need our eyes turned from this world to the world to come, from ourselves to Christ. And we can do none of this ourselves. We, even alas, as we preach, as we pray, confess that our very prayers are mingled with our sins. Our motives are torn. Our hearts find it hard to heed your holy word. So we seek grace from you who sit upon the throne of grace and ask that you may now give help to the preacher and to the hearer, not because we are righteous, not because we've prepared adequately, not because any of us has come to this place with a clean hand in his own doing, but because we need so desperately your mercies and because your Son is purchased for your people who call upon you the right to be heard when we pray, and the privilege to be blessed. Lord, glorify your gracious name in blessing us who come to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me, please, in your Bibles to John chapter 17, the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John. We are thankful for you who are visiting with us and they're glad you're here. We are preaching through the Gospel of John. We've resumed a lengthy series in this wonderful book in the last few weeks. In chapter 17, which we believe to be really the Lord's Prayer. This, the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ to his Father, representing his own in the world, praying for their welfare and their good, seeking for himself that the Father may glorify him in order that the Father, through glorifying the Son, may himself be glorified, asking that those whom the Father had given him of the apostles might be blessed and kept and sanctified and for all us who would believe on him through their word, that God would keep us, make us one, and bring us to the place of glory where we may be where the Lord is. 
this prayer is in many ways a prayer we cannot pray. Some of the aspects of this prayer are uniquely here, just as some of the aspects of the model prayer, which many call the Lord's Prayer, are uniquely ours, and he cannot pray them, like forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. This, though we believe, is the Lord's Prayer. And so much we've already seen about it, so much glory and sweetness and privilege and blessing in this chapter of God's Word, perhaps the most precious, if we could measure them, of all the passages of Scripture. Because in this chapter we are permitted the unspeakable privilege of entering into the very Holy of Holies in heaven and hearing a prayer from the lips of the Son of God to his Father, uniquely prayed by him in a relationship shared by none other, we are privileged to be in the inner circle as it was of the very throne room of heaven itself. And so we take our sandals off and come to this passage as coming to holy ground. Now this, uh, this, uh, this morning, as we continue to consider this passage, read with me the first verse of John 17. These things spake Jesus, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour is come. The hour is come. And I want this morning to concentrate your attention on this sentence. The hour is come. And I want us to consider in the first place, as we look at this passage, the identification of this phrase, the hour. What is he talking about when he says, the hour? Second, I want us to note the divine design for this hour. The divine design for the hour. Third, some things involved in the hour. Some attending factors that surround and join in to this hour that has come, about which our Lord speaks. Fourth, to note the devil's opposition to this hour and his efforts to thwart it and to make it null and void. Fourth, uh, fifthly, the Lord, the Lord Jesus' welcome commitment of himself to this hour. The Lord's welcome commitment to this hour. And then finally, if the Lord wills, some words of particular application regarding our message. Follow with me then in the first place as we consider the identification of this hour. The Lord says, Father, the hour is come. What hour? What hour is come? What does he mean by the hour? Well, it is simple. It is the hour for which he was sent into the world. It is that moment in time, that perfect fulfillment of all time for which Christ came. Not an accident, but the hour. 
this hour, or literally that particular hour, as though it were the hour for which he had been living his entire life and waiting. The hour, nothing less than the hour of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God. Behold, John the Baptist said, the Lamb of God, which is taking away the sin of the world. But how was he to take away the sin of the world? This hour will show it. This hour where the Lamb would be laid upon the altar of sacrifice and put to death by his own voluntary will and the will of his Father and the will of the Holy Spirit, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for his people's sins. Briefly turn back with me in the Gospel of John to chapter 10. In John 10, the Lord identifies himself as the Good Shepherd. And in verse 10, comparing or contrasting himself with false shepherds, thieves, who care not for the sheep, he says in verse 10 of John 10, The thief comes not, but that he may steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and may have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd, and I know mine own, and mine own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. And they shall become one flock, one shepherd. Therefore does the Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power or authority to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment received I from my Father. The Lord Jesus has come into the world to lay down his life for his sheep, his people. And he was commanded so to do, and given the right and the power to do it by his Father. And in John 17 he is saying, That hour for which you sent me to lay down my life for my sheep is come. Then again in John chapter 12, another passage, and we are only mentioning two. Many others could be cited to explain to us what he means by this hour. In John 12, Verse 23, remember this is when many of the Greeks wanted to come and see Jesus and the apostles didn't know what to do about this. Philip and Andrew were befuddled and they came to the Lord and they wanted to figure out, one of them came to the other and said, we need to talk to Jesus about this and the other one goes to Jesus and these people want to see you. And it says in verse 23, Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a grain of wheat fall into the earth and die, 
it abides by itself, alone. But if it die, it bears much fruit. And he goes on then to explain about he that loves his life will lose it, and he that will lose his life for the gospel will find it. He's explaining in chapter 12 again, these Greeks are seeking him. Why? Because the hour has come in which the gospel of God's saving purpose for the world is about to be fulfilled and men from every tongue and tribe and nation are about to come from all sides and worship at the foot of Christ. He is about to be glorified and this glory, as it were, pregnant, desiring to be delivered, is pressing itself upon the membranes waiting to be released and it's spilling over as it was in the examples throughout this chapter, chapter 12, where different elements from society and different factors are brought by the Lord to our attention as giving glory to him. The Greeks being among those who've come to glorify him. The prophets he recites from the Old Testament have glorified him. It's as though the hour has come that the Son of Man must be glorified. But know that that glory is to be accomplished by means of his death. The final accomplishment of the atonement for the sins of his people. The securing of eternal life for those given to him. Turn back again to chapter 17, verse 2. <coughs> As he has stated to the Father that the hour has come, and he has asked that the Father now glorify the Son, so that the Son may glorify the Father, he says in verse 2, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you've given him, he should give eternal life. Our Lord Jesus in this prayer is fully cognizant of the fact that he has come in order to give life and to give it more abundantly to his sheep whom the Father in the counsels of redemption from eternity had given to him. And he's been given authority over all flesh that to whomever he would, he would give life. It is his purpose for being here, he says, to give them eternal life. And he's saying, now the hour has come. Now it's time to glorify the Son as he does that which will give eternal life to his people as he dies, as he conquers death by rising from the dead, as he ascends and takes his place on the king's throne in heaven, ruling over all heaven and all earth, the king of all the kings, and the Lord of every Lord. This is the hour. The hour has come. But note with me in the second place, having seen the simple identification of this hour as the hour for his sacrifice and glory, the divine design for this hour, God's design for the hour. This hour and the definite article that's placed with the word means that this is, was a definite and an appointed time. This was not fate, nor was this 
a part of the alignment of the stars. What a pitiful thing many in our enlightened, civilized, extra-religious world actually stake many of their major decisions on the way the stars line up and the way the planets, planets configure themselves. How dreadful even that there was enough in the White House in the last administration that even the rumor could come out that they were consulting the astrology chart. However much truth there was to it, it should not even have been mentioned. And when it was, it should have been immediately repudiated as idolatry and wickedness. But it was not. It could not be because many in our society who vote for such leaders do the same thing. Because they have no conception that everything that happens in this world, every moment of time, is in the perfect control of the creator of time and space and the world. This was a definite appointed time. Now turn again to John 12, verse 27. The Lord Jesus is aware of this moment in history. Verse 27 of John 12 says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this cause came I unto this hour. This hour the Lord saw, and he came to it. And now that it's here, he asked, should I withdraw from it? Should I ask the Father to deliver me from it? It's for this reason, this moment in history, that I've arrived. I came. I was born of a virgin. I've lived all these years among men. I was, when I was twelve and teaching in the temple, when I caused my parents difficulty because they did not know who I was and what I was to be doing, as I grew up sinless, perfectly obeying my father, it was all pointed to this hour. This hour, the hour for which I came, it's here, I'm here, we've met. A perfectly timed hour. You're familiar with the passage in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, that says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might deliver those who were under bondage, that he might make them sons and adopt them. In the fullness of time, what does that mean? It means that exactly according to God's everlasting plan, right on time, according to the design of God, Christ came, and exactly at the right moment of history, he laid his life down and accomplished precisely and completely everything that the Lord had sent him to do. A definite, appointed time by divine design. But not only is it in a definite and appointed time, it is an hour that's come according to an irresistible purpose. This hour is divinely designed. Therefore, nothing could stop it from occurring. Irresistible purpose, because it's God's purpose. Up until this hour, he could not die. He could not be killed. He could not lay down his life. 
His hour was not come. Turn back to John chapter 7. Now, without turning further back, I'll just refer back to chapter 2. His mother, at the wedding of Cana, came to him saying, they've run out of wine. Remember his interesting response? Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour is not yet. He lived his whole life in this earth aware of time and timing and his hour. And he knew when it was and he knew when it wasn't. But in chapter 7, verse 8, speaking to his own brothers, his half-brothers, who did not believe on him at this time. In verse 8 he says, Go you up to the feast. I go not up yet to this feast because my time is not yet fulfilled. My time is not yet fulfilled. Verse 6, he said to them, My time is not yet come. Your time is always ready. He was aware that he did what he did on time, according to divine design. Again in verse 30, They sought therefore to take him. The adversaries of Christ, despising his teaching, rose up to take him. And no man laid his hand on him. Why? because they started thinking, you know, if we do this, we're going to cause some political uproar in town. It would be wiser to wait until a better time. Not at all. No man laid his hand on him because his hour was not yet come. They didn't know that was the reason they didn't lay their hands on him. No doubt they did have their counsel. No doubt they did have fears and whatever motives were there. But the reason the Bible tells us that they did not lay hands on him, arrest him, and kill him then was because his hour hadn't come yet. It wasn't time. It wasn't God's time. It could not be. They could not take him. They could not deliver him. They could not kill him. Chapter 8, verse 20. Again, teaching in the temple speaking of himself as the light of the world, condemning the way they judge according to the flesh. They, in verse 20 of John 8, he speaks in the treasury these words as he taught in the temple, and no man took him. It's not as though they didn't want to. They were seizing. They could hardly wait to take him. They were plotting the whole time to take him. They were looking for a chance to get him. They didn't because what? His hour was not yet come. The divinely designed hour of his death had not come. And he could not be killed until it came. He was not to die till it was time to die. Whose time? God's time. The divinely designed purpose makes this hour absolutely perfectly occur. And nothing can resist it. Now... It's irresistible because it's God's time. I want you to turn with me just to a few passages in the Old Testament. Just a few. But just these few will give us a clear picture that when God purposes and when God plans and when God thinks and when God desires, it happens. Turn back first to Psalm 115. You who are frustrated with the way the world has turned out. You who are perplexed as to why things don't work the way you at one time thought they would by now. 
you who have become disillusioned because you've tried and you've failed. No one seems to be ready to help you. Every one of your efforts has been thwarted and frustrated. You who are prone to complain about the way your life is going, about the way others treat you, about this, that, and the other, take heart. Nothing that has occurred in your life has occurred by accident, not from God's vantage point. It could not be, because in Psalm 115, verse 3, we say, Our God is in the heavens. You see what that means? It means that he rules above everything that happens to us. Everything that's happening on this earth, he's above it and sees it all and is in control of it. It is all subject to him because he sits above it. He has done whatever he pleased. He has done whatsoever he pleased. I wish those who, who run to this word whosoever in defense of Arminian salvation would run to this word whatsoever when they recognize the sovereignty of God in the Bible. Whatsoever he has pleased, he has done. We don't even have to describe that. That's it. Period. There are no discussions about it. It's not as though in spite of certain things he has. It's simply that he does. There's nothing in his way that could even slow him down. There's not even a hesitation. He's God. Because he's God in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he pleases. Chapter 135 of Psalms. Another expression of this principle. Chapter 135, verse 6. In case you think maybe all he gets his will is in heaven. It says in verse 6, Whatsoever Jehovah pleased, that has he done in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all deeps. Go someplace where Jehovah is not doing what Jehovah wants to do. And I will tell you, it is a place that doesn't exist. You're living in unreality. Whether it's in the recesses of your bedraggled imagination, or whether there's a spot in the darkness where you think God is not there, Jehovah is there. He has done and is doing whatsoever he pleases. Then in Daniel chapter 4, with which our church is very familiar because of our lengthy study uh, in past months of this marvelous prophecy, in Daniel chapter 4, you know the circumstances. Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon the king. The man whom the king of Iraq today says he is the fulfillment of. Saddam Hussein claims to be the man who is going to restore the Nebuchadnezzar rule in that part of the world. Well, here's what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. May it happen as well to Saddam Hussein. Verse 34, at the end of the days, what days? The days in which God had turned Nebuchadnezzar, the pompous ruler of the most uh, prosperous nation of the world, who was in control of everybody, who was ruling over God's people, had brought him into exile, burned down the temple, conquered Israel, and offered the sacrifice, the, the, the tokens of God's praise to his own gods in Babylon. 
This Nebuchadnezzar had been turned by Jehovah into a wolf man. Living out in the, in the wastelands, fingernails growing long, hair growing long, beard growing long, toenails long, a wild wolf man, a beast. And he learned his lesson. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up mine eyes unto heaven. Same phraseology we read in chapter 17 of John. When you get it, your perspective's right. Your eyes get lifted to the right direction. And mine understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High. You always bless the Most High when your understanding is right. And I praised and honored him that what? lives forever. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't live forever. Jehovah does. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom from generation to generation. You see, he's seeing the contrast between his dominion, his kingdom, his life, and Jehovah's. And he's coming clean with it. And then he says, and all the inhabitants, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. And he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what are you doing? He doesn't even ask counsel. No one is even in a position to inquire as to what he's up to. He simply does it. We don't even know what he's doing. We certainly cannot stop him from doing whatever he wants to do in all the army of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth. There's not a human being. There's not a wicked angel, including the devil, who is not ultimately carrying out the purposes of Jehovah. The devil has not circumvented God's purpose, nor has he thrown a surprise monkey wrench into the works of divine purpose. God is doing his pleasure, accomplishing his will, and none can stop his hand, even hindering, or even get to the place where they have a right to ask, what are you doing? Because he's God. Then turn further over into the book of Isaiah, where we can find several chapter passages again in this marvelous prophetic gospel, according to Isaiah chapter 40. First of all, and you're, you who know the book of Isaiah know that we're only touching a smattering. You'll remember this passage was read in, in a, a famous movie that received the Academy Award. Though the lead actor in the movie who played the hero has died of AIDS since the movie was made, these words were read and the many millions of people have heard them read. And it's one of the most precious passages of Scripture. And my heart thrilled as I sat and listened to this read in that movie. Though it was read by a pagan, by a heathen, by a wicked man, it was read and it has power. Verse 15, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are accounted as a small dust of the balance. Behold, he takes up the isles as a very little thing 
and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beasts thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and vanity. Then verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? What he's saying is, couldn't you just look at creation and figure this out? What a message to our generation, educated in civilized education, the wisdom of this world. You could ask them, have you not heard? Couldn't you even notice creation and figure this out? Where have you been? It is he that sits above the circle of the earth, and the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretches out the heavens as a curtain and spreads them out as a tent to dwell in, that brings princes to nothing. Men, men elevate themselves, or so they think, and they rule over other men, and they are formidable force, and they cannot be resisted, and God brings them to nothing that brings princes to nothing, that makes the judges of the earth as vanity. Yea, they have not been planted. Yea, they have not been sown. Yea, their stock has not taken root in the earth. Moreover, he blows upon them and they wither. And the whirlwind takes them away as stubble. To whom then would you liken me, liken me that I should be equal to him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created thee that brings out their host by number, looking at the stars and the planets and all, all that, multitude, infant, that, that inexhaustible number of the planetary bodies. He calls them all by name. We haven't even seen them all. By the greatness of his might, and for that he is strong in power, not one is lacking. He's comparing himself to anybody else. And then in chapter 43, verse 13. Yea, since the day was, I am he. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I will work. And who will hinder it? And then chapter 45, verse 5. I am Jehovah, and there is none else. Besides me there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I am the Lord that does all these things. Then chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. In other words, before it ever happened at the beginning, he already told us what the end was going to be. How can he? Because he's already sitting out there where the end is. He's not waiting for the end to happen. He sits above that time, the end. He's beyond it already. 
He's simply stating what is, as though it already has occurred. From the ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken, I will also bring it to pass. I have purpose. I will also do it. We could go on and on and on and on and on. But this is enough to say, you best not raise your little fist into the face of God. And you best not worry about the way times are happening. He's in control of it. But you say, Pastor, I would like to get some comfort from this. The one part of that makes me shudder. There are things in my life that I hope God won't catch me doing. There are things I continue to attempt to hide from him and get by with. And if these words are true, and he said that he's going to judge all iniquity, and he knows everything, then I cannot escape it. Help! Many people refuse to hear this because of what it begins to do to their consciences as soon as they hear it. The implications of the absolute sovereignty of God are frightening to the sinner. That's the reason that that doctrine is fundamental to truth. It's the reason that until a man confesses with his heart that God is God in creation, in providence, and in salvation, and God does it all his way, and none can stop him, and he saves all he will, and none can keep him from it, and he doesn't need our help. Until a man has come to that in the heart, he's not a Christian. He's not turned from his idols. He's not worshipping God, the God of heaven. He's not worshipping him as God. It's vital to true religion that we believe these statements that God makes of himself and the scriptures make of him through his prophets, that he is God and he does what he pleases. But if that's all we knew, it would not be comforting to us who have failed him and who might wish we could get around it. But there's comfort. Because God's purposes, which cannot be thwarted, are the purposes of salvation. Everything that is brought about this hour, about which our Lord prays, has been for salvation. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Again, just a smattering of text in the Bible. Oh, if men in our day, if their little ones, could be taught Genesis chapters 1 through 11, how much of this world would make sense to them. No wonder they are so perplexed and confused. No wonder they have no sense of purpose. No wonder they can't comprehend their identity. They've, been, they've had these chapters removed from their literature. They're not being educated. They're not being taught the whole truth. Those words chiseled upon many of the doorposts and the mantles of churches, of, of schools across this country. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, having been wrested from the very source from which they were gotten, are no longer true in those places. How we need to be able to know what God said from the beginning to find out that what's happening now is not an accident. In Genesis 3.15, 
the Lord prophesied, I will put enemy between you and the woman, he speaks to the devil in the form of his serpent, and between your seed and her seed. Her seed, he says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In Genesis 3.15, God speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman through whom the world would be saved from the devil and death. And then in Genesis chapter 49, another significant passage, prophesying. It's not as though this passage so much is predicting it, it's just referring to it as something everybody knows is going to happen. Genesis 49 verse 10. Here's Jacob, about to die. And remember by faith he prophesied and blessed his sons, leaning on the top of that staff that he had carried with him all those days. In his youth he was a stubborn mule, and God had, by grace, blessed him. In verse 10 he's prophesying about Judah. And he says, The scepter, the ruling rod, shall not depart from Judah. The king shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall be the obedience of the people. Almost like a passing reference to something everyone knew was going to happen. Someday, one who will make peace, one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, is coming. And the kingdom of Israel will stay in the line of Judah till Shiloh comes from that line and fulfills the purpose of peace and the counsel of peace and the establishment of righteousness in the earth. No accident that this hour has come upon Christ. This was that which was prophesied to come. Then turn to Psalm 22. And I do not apologize to taking you through these basic texts Many of you may say, Pastor Allen, I already know these. Why don't you teach us something fresh? I pray you don't have that spirit. You haven't learned this as you ought to learn it. And there are those sitting here who've never heard it and need to hear it. Some of you have never gotten a grasp on how much God knows and how much God's purpose and how all this is just right. How the Lord Jesus is just what God planned. You've never seen him as really what he is. You heard of him, you think you believe on him. Some of you may have made your decision by some evangelist or somebody, but you've never in your heart seen Jesus Christ as the center and hub of history. You've never seen him as the culmination of all God's purposes and promises. You've never seen him. Your heart doesn't understand it. You don't love him. You can't make yourself love him. You know about him, you know some verses about him, but something's wrong in there because you've never worshipped him. You've never seen that he's the God of the Scriptures. Look at Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning. And then this chapter goes on to describe death by crucifixion. And the very words themselves are the words that we now know came out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus when he laid his life down for his sheep. Prophetic description of the death of Christ. Even down to describing what the soldiers around him were going to do with his garments. Describing the shape of his body, his bodily functions, his heart's groaning, his heart's cry, they, how they cast lots on his garments, on and on and on, describing the very events surrounding that day. And there were lots of different ways Jesus could have been put to death. 
But this prophecy understood there would be certain types of soldiers dressed in certain types of uniforms, practicing certain types of practices like the casting of lots, gambling, etc. at the foot of the cross, dividing up garments even to the point of knowing what kind of garments he would be wearing. The very moment of history is seen in Psalm 22 many hundreds of years before the occasion. You say, well, that's no big deal. I already know that. Some don't know that. Some have yet to get a grasp of it. Some have yet to see that the Bible is all true from beginning to the end and what's written in the beginning is, is foreseeing what's only happening because God wanted it to happen and said it was going to happen. He declared the end from the beginning. Here's another example. Then turn over to the book of Isaiah again. Now notice, Jehovah does all his purposes and you can't thwart them. But what is his purpose? To save his people. From Genesis 3, at the foot of the fall, God pointed to the foot of the cross. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. In the second part of the verse, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time has he made it glorious by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. They that dwelt in the land of the shadow of death upon them as the light shines. What in the world is Isaiah talking about? You know, because you know this was quoted in the New Testament when the Lord Jesus, that great light, walked among Galilee. And the Pharisees who did not know him and who thought they knew the scriptures but did not know the scriptures said, what good thing can come out of Nazareth? The light comes out of Nazareth. Galilee of the Gentiles, that despised portion of, of the land of Judea, of Israel. Out of that's where God's going to bring Shiloh, the Savior. A light shines on a nation forsaken, on a people in the, in the backwaters, as it were. A light's going to shine. Blessing's going to come on those formerly cursed. And then in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. Everything wrong in the earth among men at the hands of wicked rulers, God's going to put upon his son's shoulders that government and he's going to replace unjustness, injustice with justice. He's going to rule unto righteousness and though you doubt it, the Lord of hosts and his zeal will see to it that it comes to pass. He's going to save us from injustice he's going to say, he's going to save us brethren not the UN not our politicians they don't fear him they don't acknowledge him they don't love him he will thwart all their purposes to achieve ultimate peace he will never let them do it there will be wars and rumors of wars while the prince of peace rules over the world until he's finished with wars and puts them to an end then there'll be peace but it'll be to his glory and not to theirs. Chapter 11 of Isaiah, verse 1 and following. And this sea is from the picture 
of this little nation Israel that it was all was left was a little stump of a tree. It looked like she had lost it. The original glory and the purposes were down, going downhill. What used to be wonderful is no longer wonderful. And some of you could look in the history of the church in America and become discouraged and remember how it once was, or how at least some think it once was. I'm not sure it once was so much. But whether it was or not, some go discouraged and say, remember what it was like. It looks like Christianity is going downhill. And many writers among theologians and some of our seminaries are writing that we have entered the post-Christian era. They believe that it's downhill from here, brethren. Well, not according to the scripture. Out of this shoot, this little, this little twig is sticking out of the side of the stalk of Jesse. This little trunk that the tree was cut off, no fruit, no leaves, no life. But out of the side comes this little branch, this little twig. Just like that old tree that was cut down in the front of our yard. And for years we've lived there, five years, and that we left the stump for the kids to have something to carve up and jump on and play with so we wouldn't feel bad when they tore it up. And there's this other little tree that's coming off the side of it now. Wonderful little tree. It looks like a fruit tree. So what probably happened is not growing out of that one. Somebody dropped a cherry or a peach seed down in there. A squirrel, somebody, planted a tree for us. But this picture is one that out of that stump that everybody left for dead and burned and thought was nothing, a little twig pops up off the side of it and starts a new tree. Out of the original stump, put a new tree. Out of that stalk that you'd lost heart in, this meager, quiet little baby from Bethlehem to Egypt and back to Nazareth, obscure, never traveled apparently more than a, a 50 miles from his home place or not much, for, not more than 200 miles. As far as we know, he never, with his own writing hand, wrote a book. Uh, never was a, uh, greatly in, uh, uh, very, for very long and greatly uh, paid a whole lot of money to go speak. Out of this a branch, out of the roots, shall bear fruit. Verse 2, And the spirit of Jehovah shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Jehovah. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes neither decide after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked and righteousness shall be the girdle of his waist and faithfulness the girdle of his loins. No surprise that the hour has come. And then just two other passages quickly, firmly to establish God's purpose, chapter 42 of Isaiah, verses 1 through 4. His purpose to save. You see, the point that Isaiah continues to mention is truth and justice and righteousness. And isn't that what frustrates you? Where is truth? Who's honest? On whom can you depend to put right that which is wrong? Who looks after the fatherless? Who cares about the, the widow? Who cares about the poor and the meek? And in this context, those who follow Christ in the world think they're nothing for their foolishness. They call us superstitious. They think we're crazy. They call us fanatics. They look down their noses. They don't even give us the time of day. They don't even persecute us. They don't even count us. The ultimate insult. Don't even give us burial. We're not worth it. The picture of the world's view toward us. Well, what about that? Well, God's sending one that's going to set things right. He's going to judge with equity the meek. 
He's going to deliver the poor. The meek will inherit the earth. Those that keep grabbing the earth will lose it, and the meek who don't grab it but wait for God will have it. In chapter 42, he says, Behold. He's saying to us, look, Lift up your eyes and look. Get a, get a good look at this one, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. Remember what we preached in the earlier portion of this chapter, how the Father loves the Son and the Son knew about that love. In whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. And you see the language here is in the uh, perfect tense, as though it's already happened. But it hadn't happened. And yet in God's reckoning, it is just as though it had. It is settled and certain. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles and to the nations. He will not cry nor lift up his voice nor cause it to be heard in the street. He's not going to be a rabble-rouser. He's not going to be a marcher and a picketer. He's not going to be leading riots. He'll refuse every effort to make him do so. His approach is not going to be what your, the zealot's approach would be. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. There's this picture of gentleness about him. He will bring forth justice in truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he have set justice in the earth and the isles shall wait for his law. Again, the prophecy of the Lord Jesus coming to put things right that were wrong. But finally, that last passage in Isaiah 53, that glorious opening up of the prophecy of this hour coming. The prophet recognizing that many have not heard what has been preached to them. In verse 2 says, For he grew up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He has no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised. He had no halos, brethren. The little baby Jesus was not without crying in the manger. He went through all the contingencies of all the rest of us, tempted in all ways like his way. He needed help changing diapers. He needed somebody to feed him. He got cold. He got tired. He got hot. He had all the pressures you have. And you can just read through his life and see them over and over again. He wasn't what many would like him to be. The medieval artists missed it. They missed it. Don't go goggle over that stuff. Don't go staring at that stuff in, those, in the chapel in Rome. And be amazed. Yes, the skill of the men is amazing what they were able to do, but they missed it. Much of it they missed. They put it in a complete, they put it in its Greek glory. They glorify the muscular structure of men. The Lord Jesus, I doubt that he was a daily bench presser. I doubt not that he was in great shape, but I don't think this guy was Mr. Bulging Muscle bragging on his, re on his new acquisition of the up-to-date universal system. I don't think you'd see him flexing himself in front of a mirror. You know why? Because he understood what manhood really is. He was despised and rejected as man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know the rest of the chapter we could read on and on. It's a blessed thing to read. But the point I'm making is that all of Jehovah's purpose will be established. None can stop it. And that purpose focuses itself on nothing other than, less than, the salvation of his people. Father, the hour has come. The hour which God has planned, has purposed, has set, has come right on time. The hour in which Jehovah will, by his Son, deliver his beloved people from their sins, from their enemies, from the fear of death. The hour has come. No accident, no quirk of fate. All the powers of heaven have employed themselves throughout all the times of the earth. Everything previous to this hour has been orchestrated by God in order to bring the world to this very hour. You explain to me why a pagan nation, Rome, built its calendar around this man. Why you still, in a pagan nation, look to a calendar built on the year of our Lord or before Christ. You explain that. All the powers of heaven brought the earth to this hour and the world to this hour. As Augustine said, time did not force Christ to die. Christ chose the time to die. Nothing could be plainer in all the Bible than that all history has marched according to God's plan to the fulfillment of his gracious purpose to save sinners from their sins by the death of his son. What I'm saying to you, I hope you can translate it. Everything God purposed, God has done and God will do. And God has purposed to save sinners from their sins. And he sent his son into the world to recover that which was lost and to restore that which we lost when we blew it and fell in the garden. At the very sight of the fall, Right after the fall, Jehovah announced his everlasting plan to bring about the restoration of those who'd fallen. Of the sons of Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ was promised to come and save them. Here he is, looking to the Father, lifting his eyes to heaven, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify the Son, that the Son may glorify thee. And then he confesses that it was to him that all authority was given over flesh, that to whom, to those whom God had given him, he would now give them eternal life. What I'm saying to you that are believers is take great heart. The Lord God put his eye on you from eternity. The reason you are saved is because the Lord Jesus came to his appointed hour and accomplished his appointed task. And there's not one chance in all the universe that you would not have been saved. 
any more than there was a chance that his death would not have occurred or that the times would have gotten mixed up and God would have lost control. There was no more chance of your being lost than that. Just as surely as God purposed the time, set the time, fulfilled the time, surely your salvation came to pass. Christ came and saved you from your sins according to God's appointment. You're not saved because you decided in your sovereign will one day to become a Christian. You decided that because God sent his son at the right hour. You're not saved because you're good. You're not good. You're not saved because you particularly wanted to. You wanted to be saved because God wanted to save you and decided to save you. You're saved even your faith in Christ was God's timely gift to you who works all moments after his own counsel. None could stop you from being saved. It was impossible that anybody could stop God from saving you. The Lord Jesus, was he couldn't, he did it. Nothing could stop you. Your salvation was set. God, with a mighty arm, loved you and saved you. Can you not say thank you to that? Does that not owe you? That for you, God orchestrated every minute of time. You say, well, that's getting a little presumptuous, I think. No, it's not. He loved me, the apostle said, and gave himself for me. He calls the stars by name. You think he doesn't call you by name? He put them where he wanted them and ran them in the order he pleased, and they do everything he says. Is any less to be said of you who are more valuable than many stars? Not a bird falls without my father, and aren't you worth more than many sparrows? Drink in God's gracious providence of temporal control designed for your everlasting good. Drink in God's irresistible purpose and design that the hour he purposed came. And that which he purposed to do in that hour was done. And you were freed from your sins. Drink it in and rejoice with all the saints that God has been pleased to have included you in the accomplishments of that hour. And then to you who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe one of our visitors who's come among us, maybe your children, maybe someone who's playing a double life here as a member of the church and has hidden it from us but has not hidden it from God and you'd love to be free do you not understand that this hour for which he came and the hour in which he accomplished his purposes was in order that he might deliver every sinner who would come to him what doth hinder you what keeps you from running to Christ and saying if you are in control of the universe and if you, the God of heaven, came down and on your own terms and your own time died at the right moment for sins and for sinners like me and if invited us to come and if promised that if I'd come you'd never cast me out, I come! What does hinder you? What keeps you from Christ? What keeps you from Christ and his church? What keeps you from the waters of baptism where you publicly disavow your last life, your previous affections, all your little idols and your gods and come out in the open and join yourself with these few that call themselves by his name and identify yourselves happily with the off-crop, the, off the offshoots, 
the outcasts of the world and forsake the pleasures of Egypt for a season and suffer Ill, Ill treatment with the people of God because you can see beyond and you know the recompense of the award. What keeps you? What does hinder you? Is it your pride? You're too good to rely on another for your salvation. You shall not be saved any other way. You shall perish in the flames of God's wrath. Is it your confidence in your good works? You don't have any that God accepts. They're filthy rags in his sight. All we like sinners, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. Have, has it not occurred to you yet that the predicament you're in and all the problems you've brought, you brought them on yourself? Look back. It's your choices. You're the one that got yourself in this predicament. It's all your fault. Humble yourself and run to him who will receive you and save you and bless you and turn it around. Don't stubbornly refuse. Is it some sin you love more than your own soul? Is there something there in you that you're refusing to turn loose of because you just love it too much? I warn you, I beg you, I plead with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, my dear friend, it is not at all worth it. I would say this to you. You better enjoy it all you can because it's not going to last long. And when it's over, you'll be of all men most pitiful. Or of all women. There is no delight or pleasure that is worth losing your soul. What if you gained the whole world and you're in no danger of having that? What, what if you did? and lose your own soul. What shall it profit? What shall it profit? What have you profited? Look at yourself. What has your way? You've turned to your way. What is it, God? The way of the transgressor is hard, isn't it? Be freed from it. Drop the weight off your back. Get the guilt behind you. Remove the, the, the curse. Save yourself from this untoward generation. Flee to him. Who alone can save, but who can save to the uttermost? And who will? Everyone who comes. Where will you step from the invitation just given? How far away will you walk? Don't take a step. Stand in the full view of Christ upon his invitation and bow to him. Humble yourself. Receive his offer. And know what it means to look back and say, Father, thank you that the hour came and you delivered me from my sin. May every saint in this room spend the rest of this day to some measure of it giving glory to God that there was such an hour and there was such a one that fulfilled his obligations for yourself, for your sake on that hour. And let every sinner contemplate severely before you leave. And may God give you grace not to leave without running to the Lord Jesus and saying, let the benefits flowing from that hour of your death come to me and bless me. Bless me, Lord, even me. I don't deserve it, but I lay claim on your own promises. Have mercy on me, a sinner. May God give us grace to obey his gospel. Let us bow together. Our Father, these lips ought to be able to proclaim free grace because they have been themselves the recipients of such free mercy. This church ought to be able to hold out Christ to the worst of sinners because we were the worst of sinners. 
we ought to be able to rejoice and humble ourselves and give thanks to you for the salvation in your Son because we ourselves have been delivered from the wrath to come, from the love of iniquity, from the fears associated with our bondage to Satan. And, O Lord, we do thank you and praise you and bless you that you obeyed and fulfilled the commandment given you from eternity and that you endured the cross, despised the shame, but because of your endurance are set down at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. We thank you that you saved us, you delivered us, you accomplished your purposes. O Lord, we would not want another God who would try his hardest and somehow fall short because of our resistance or the devil. We're glad that you were not thwarted by our resistance. O Lord, if it were our resistance, you noted, we could never be saved. We could never change. But you've had mercy on us, and we now ask that you would have mercy on others. We pray that the power that thwarted all the purposes of hell and delivered your son up to die and raised him from the dead would now move in this place and enter into heart after heart and grant grace to the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the heart to know that Jesus Christ is eternal life. Lord, grant life today in this place to some have heard and thereby glorify your name. Hear our prayer and thank you for our Savior as we ask it in his name. Amen.